You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1325, recorded Sunday, July 17th, 2016. Hey, thanks for tuning in again. It's Carl and Richard with another Geek Out. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm excited about this show because, you know, revisiting subjects is always an interesting challenge. I, yeah, especially for those of us who are just trying to remember what we said the last time. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, so I will recap. Don't worry. Yeah, that's great. But first, before we do that, it's time for something fun that I found on the internet. Oh. All right, buddy, what do you got? So if you go to 1325.pwop.me, you will see a YouTube video by Techmoan, which is a look at new old stock boombox from the 80s and 90s. Basically found a place on eBay that was selling these old boomboxes for like 39 pounds. And the guy's a Brit, too, so he's a hilarious to, to you so know. So, the accent's awesome. Right. And you're thinking at first, oh, wow, this is going to be cool. It's going to be a trip down memory lane. It might actually sound really good. Well, guess again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, the nostalgia is there. All the tape warble and crappy sound and bad speakers. He takes the thing apart and, you know, basically rips it a new one. There's a reason why the, the why the the site is called Tech Moan M O A N, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna be good news. <laughs> oh no! But it, it was a serious time vampire for me, and I loved every second of it. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. But you know, and right in that same time when the boombox became the big boombox, right, is when the Walkman came out, and suddenly yeah. you just had earphones and a and a little tape deck on your hip, so to speak. Yeah, that didn't stop the rappers and hip hop guys, though. They love the boom boxes because you yeah. know it's more fun to broadcast your music to the world yeah. than it is to enjoy it nicely in your head it is absolutely an aesthetic yeah two ways about it yep yep so All if right. you're nostalgic for that old stuff just check out the uh check out the video may heck maybe you weren't even around when when all this was going on so it's a history <laughs> lesson at least yeah <laughs> this is how music used to be right okay who's talking to us richard 
grabbed a comment off of show 1154, the geek out we did on energy storage. Yes. Which was a good romp. We went all over the place on that one. Yeah. And uh, Andy Pierpoint said, uh, hi, Richard and Carl, longtime dot netter, listening to the show, even back in the double digit days. Yep. Ooh, before my time. <laughs> uh, love the geek outs and thought I would comment on this one because I noticed a link that may be of interest. There is a five megawatt storage facility being built in Germany at the Aachen University. Whoa. Uh, it appears to be using a variety of battery types and inverter technologies, and for two years, the battery system will be connected to the local medium voltage grid and used to compensate for the energy demand. And here's the link. And the site, now that's, that comment admittedly is a year old. The site is m5bat.de for hmm. Germany, and wow. there is an English version there. And so uh, at the time... Uh, when Andy made this comment, I think, hey, I'll just keep an eye on this, which I have. They're actually building it. Wow. Now, and one of the things to be aware of when you're talking about Germany is, of course, Germany, after Fukushima, made this huge move to wind. Well, that, that made them shut down their nuclear power plants. That's they were right. already moving to solar and wind a lot. And both solar and wind suffer from power variation enough that a battery system would be potentially interesting. This is a five megawatt facility, which is nowhere near big enough long term, mm. but it's big enough that it's industrial battery levels. And they are experimenting with a bunch of different battery techniques, a bunch of different storage approaches and distribution approaches. So it's really uh, a scaled up research facility. Wow. Big enough that, you know, you can't mess around. And that to me is really exciting because mm -hmm. maybe there isn't necessarily a good answer here, but at least somebody's actually trying it and, and doing some tests. I'll include a link to the M5 bat site if you want to take a look, but they are looking at power storage at scale and what that would actually mean. Well, it's interesting what happens when you take nuclear off of the table. You know, now you got to get creative and it, it, it can be entirely industrious fun yeah i don't know you know all traditional power systems the main thing was stability and then you get into solar and, and wind and wave and mm. they're more erratic and you don't necessarily provide power exactly when you want so we need some way to store power um even the traditional power systems would benefit from some power storage it's mm -hmm. just a question of whether or not this works at scale so i'm just glad the data is being collected so andy thank you so much for your comment and the great site we're continuing to keep an eye on it and uh .net rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a .net rocks mug write a comment on the website at .net rocks.com or via any of our social media we publish every show to google plus and facebook and if you comment there and we read it on the show we'll send you a mug and definitely send us a tweet he's at rich campbell i'm at carl franklin follow us on twitter send us tweets we love them we love them we love them we love them until we get indigestion so <laughs> don't love them too much <laughs> So where do we start today, Richard? I guess you said you wanted to recap. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is we did talk about thorium back in uh, 2013, mm -hmm. right? We had a guy named Don Larson on the show, right? Who had you know had a background in software development and has moved into this business, right? Of uh, making thorium reactors a reality. And I've been, you know, he's a nuclear scientist, and so we had a conversation with him talking really about three separate things, right? Thorium as a fuel, the yeah. molten salt reactor, mm. and turbine designs. He was a particular advocate of the helium turbine. Right. Okay. Now, and at the time, if you recall, I actually pressed him on why all three? Like, why can't we do any one of these? Mm. You know, recognizing the conservatism of power generation and engineering in general, 
you know, let's not move too many balls at once. And in fact, not long after that show, I did read about a research facility in Norway that was fueling a light water reactor using steam turbines with thorium hmm. as a as a demonstration project. It was only a five megawatt reactor, right? Normally you want about 300. But it was steam turbines and not helium. And it was a solid core reactor, yeah. right? They were, they were actually making thorium into fuel rods as part of the experiment. Interesting. And, it, and, it, and if you actually dig into that more, uh, it's a mixture of different kinds of rods. Because thorium is so stable, it doesn't actually make for a good uh, fissile material. It's not fissile itself. You have to do things to it to make that work. All right. So I, before you go on, let's recap just a little bit about thorium. And we know it's an element, but it's also fairly abundant, at least in the United States or in North America, right? It's actually abundant all over the world. Great. Uh, it's literally in the sand on the beaches of Malabar in India. Wow. In the form of monzonite. So where you usually find thorium is as part of rare earth ores. Now, rare earths as misnamed, they're not rare. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this is typically like, you know, palladium and, uh, you know, uh, all these crazy EMs that you find. Yeah. The common rare earths, the ones that are used in electronics a lot, are things like lanthanum and cerium. Okay. And one particular ore, which is, again, quite abundant, is this ore called monzonite. And this is the ore that is literally in the beach sands in India. Okay, but only in India, but it's also in the soil everywhere, isn't it? Well, it's, it, it is a, monzonite is a common ore, all right? It's all over the place. And, uh, within monzonite, it's about five to 10% thorium. And it's really normally considered a byproduct. You don't want that. You want the lanthanum and the cerium and the issue hmm. and a few other elements. So they don't use it for much. And they, so the only reason that it's particularly relevant is as we look at using thorium as a fuel source, it is extremely abundant yeah so the for example there is a mine in idaho a very ordinary mine that extracts about 4500 metric tons of thorium a year right and it's also important to say richard that it's not only abundant but it's easy to mine which is the real problem with hydrogen let's say which is completely abundant but actually isolating it is expensive well, it's hard to contain, right? It's, it's, it's light and it moves around a lot. It's, this is a metal, right? Mm -hmm. So it has all the advantages of handling a metal. It's also a very low radioactive. It is, it is barely measurable as a radioactive in its normal form is 232. Right. And this is the other thing we talked about back in 2013 is that because it's low radioactive, you don't have the danger of, um, plutonium and uranium. Well, and it's, you know, we're going to get to the fun part about that because it turns out you don't actually use thorium in your reactor. You use uranium, but you make the uranium from the thorium. Oh, okay. <laughs> we still have problems, but okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there, but it's not, they're not bad problems. I mean, the few things to understand about how abundant thorium is, is if we used the sort of optimal reactor design, and there's a bunch of different thorium reactor designs. You could probably power the U.S. entire power demands with about 400 metric tons of thorium. For how long? For a year. Oh. So about 400 metric tons of thorium perfectly utilized would be all the power that the U.S. needs. And when you consider that one mine in Idaho pulls out 10 times that a year. Wow. There's a lot of thorium. Okay. Okay. We need a, it, there's a, it takes a lot more uranium in light water reactors to make the same amount of power compared to thorium. Wow. So, again, we get back to this whole thing of th 
why molten salt versus the light water reactor? One of the problems with light water reactors, which we normally use enriched uranium for, is mm -hmm. you have to mine a lot of regular uranium, uranium-238, which only has 0.7% uranium-235 in it, and you need 5% uranium-235 to make fuel rods. Okay. So you have to mine a lot of uranium and then concentrate it to make it into fuel rods. So you have a lot of waste product there. This is what they call depleted uranium, and it's expensive to make rods. The bigger issue with, with the rod system is when you fission uranium, it becomes other elements. And many of those elements are gases. So, for example, xenon and krypton are formed inside these solid core rods in the process of fissioning. Hmm. And you don't want your rods to break. Remember that the way that a light water reactor works, go back to 2013 when we're doing these shows, is the spacing between the rods matters. Mm -hmm. You don't want them too close together. You don't want them too far apart. You want them just right. And so should they crumble or should they shatter and end up at the bottom of your containment vessel in a big pile, it's going to overheat. You got a problem. It becomes a big issue, right? That is the problem is they don't, you don't want the overheat breakdown and then you can't control the rate of their react. Mm. Okay, so the advantage of a molten salt approach, the liquid fuel approach, is that the fission products that are created don't get trapped in the matrix. They can move around. Hmm. All right. That's okay. an important advantage of molten salt. Thorium is very abundant, It all, but it is going to be made into uranium, but it's going to be made into a different uranium than what we use in light water reactors. Okay. Now, and I... I don't want to recap, just talk about everything we did in the previous show sure, sure. Or, because there's more information. Just because we make a show doesn't mean I stop researching. Yeah, there's some <laughs> new new things have come out and new plants have been made and all sorts of good stuff. There are actually six different companies that I'm tracking that are trying to build a molten salt reactor. Wow. And some, and they've published a lot more information now. And so one of the reasons I wanted to get back to this subject is that we have, we know a lot more about Molten salt reactors today. And the, but I'm only going to be able to focus on one, the one I have the most information about. Okay. And that is the one led by a guy named Kirk Sorensen, ex NASA nuclear researcher. He got involved in molten salt because one of his jobs at NASA was researching building nuclear power in space. And so he cared about light reactors because you got to lift them to space and ran into this project called the, the, the U.S. Air Force's airborne reactor for, uh, for bombers. Mm. And it was a molten salt reactor, and that led him to Los Alamos and the, in, this entire project. And he realized the sort of potential of using molten salts uh, and thorium together to make a reactor because it had been built in the 1950s. It was just a competing design to the light water reactor, and it lost. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Yep. But he's got that strong engineering background, and so they've done a lot of research in this space. The advantage of using molten salts is that they're hot. So you combine thorium with fluorine to get a, this fluorine salt. It's a solid up until it gets to about 400 degrees Celsius. And that's a feature Ooh. because if, if for any reason you had a breach in containment and this stuff leaked out, it would harden almost right away because keeping it that hot is hard to do. Its natural operating temperature where, you, where you're happy with it reacting is about 700 degrees Celsius. Wow. And it boils at about 1,400 degrees Celsius. So it runs at very high temperatures. And that's useful for making electricity. 
because you need high heat to actually conduct that heat safely into turbines, right? Yeah. One of the problems you have with light water reactors is because they use water as their medium for transmitting heat and water only boils at 100 degrees Celsius, mm -hmm. that's not hot enough to turn a turbine. So yeah. to get higher temperatures, you put the water in a pressure vessel. Okay. And pressurizing that gives you that higher temperature so you can spin a turbine efficiently, but it makes the whole system more dangerous. To have a molten salt at such high temperatures means you don't need to pressurize anything. It runs at one atmosphere, which means you don't have explosive breaches. That big concrete containment vessel you see on light water reactors is sized based on the amount of expansion superheated steam breaking out of the, out of, out of the inner containment vessel would expand to. So is this a new revelation? A recent no. revelation? Or is this the way that they've been done since we knew about them? These core elements came out in the 1950s, right? This okay. sort of reality. And one of the best descriptions I've seen of the advantage of this approach, imagine you're trying to balance a pencil. Okay. You have a choice. You can either balance it on your palm, sticking upright. Mm. Now, you can do that, but it's a constant balancing act, right? You're constantly moving your hand to keep the pencil upright. Right. That is the way a light water reactor works. It is a constant effort to keep pressures, pumping rates and temperatures in equilibrium so that the system remains stable. You can't let it go. You mm. can't take your eye off it, mm. as opposed to grabbing the pencil and hanging it downwards where it's inherently stable. Wow. When you deal with molten salts, things are much easier. One of the reasons that the salt they're using is fluorine is because fluorine is highly reactive. It combines with everything. Mm which is good because you're going to make a bunch of stuff. Mm. You know, we're going to start with thorium, but we're going to make all kinds of different elements along the way, and we want the fluorine to grab it every time because as long as it's a fluorine salt, it's stabler and easier to work with. Okay. So here's the fuel chain. First, you need some thorium. Now, it turns out there's lots around. In fact... I've heard the, that. I found... I found this out. In 2006, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy, actually stored 7 million pounds of refined thorium nitrate. Wow. They'd originally acquired and refined it in the 50s and 60s to make part of the national defense stockpile. Because it turns out you can make thorium with some tricks into weapons. Not very good ones, but it works. So they buried 3,200 metric tons of refined thorium out in the desert in Nevada. Hmm. So we probably don't actually need to mine and refine any thorium for a long time. Hey, does uh, does Putin know about this? <laughs> he does now. <laughs> I don't think it's that much of a secret. Okay. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Stackify. Hey, you know, .NET developers are writing better code these past few months. Well, the thousands that are using Prefix are anyway. Stackify built Prefix to rapidly improve their own apps. Now they've decided to share it with the rest of us, which is great. No .NET profiler is easier, prettier, or more powerful, and people are catching on. Twitter is a flutter with stories of saved bacon. Go to bit.ly slash getprefix, and we'll hook you up with a free download. So once you have thorium, and it typically comes as a, a nitrate or an oxide, mm -hmm. you heat it up and combine it with fluorine, and it becomes a, a high-temperature fluid. Okay. Now, it's stable. It's not going to do anything. So you have to pump it into a reactor. Now, this, this is a multi-stage reactor. There's an outer blanket 
and there's an inner core. Okay. And the way to envision this reactor is it's a series of vertical tubes. I've heard this metaphor before. Where have I heard this series of tubes metaphor? Nice. Oh, the yeah. internet. That's what it was. Like the internet, only <laughs> a little more radioactive. And by the way, those tubes are made of graphite, and that's important. Yeah, they have to be to withstand the, the stuff that they're carrying, right? They're also the moderating matrix. So in a light water reactor, the moderating matrix is water. Water does double duty in a light water reactor. Mm. It controls the rate of neutrons because neutrons bang into the water mm. and actually slow them down, make them thermal, as well as being the mechanism for doing cooling and transmitting heat. Okay. In the molten salt reactor, the graphite is the moderating medium. Hmm. And the nice thing about that is if you take this molten salt away from graphite, it stops reacting. Wow. So it's kind of like a catalyst, you'd say, a moderator, a catalyst. Yes. Okay. The funny thing is they call it a moderator because the neutrons naturally emitted in a reactor move at very high speeds. And that's a problem because the faster they're moving, the harder it is to hit other atoms. Hmm. And so by putting a moderating matrix, whether that be water or graphite, there's a bunch of other choices, liquid sodium is used in some reactors, even lead's used in some reactors. Hmm. Those fast-moving neutrons bang into these other atoms. And because these atoms are inherently stable, if a neutron enters them, another one exits. So they remain, the atom remains stable, but that atom exits at a lower energy rate. The energy of the speed of the neutron is turned into heat, which is why we call it a thermal reactor. So your metaphor of hanging the pencil from the top, you know, letting gravity do the work is really starting to come into sharp focus here because I'm seeing that all you're really doing is combining stuff that naturally reacts and does the work for you that you don't need to do right. you know, with technology. And, and when you take away any of the ingredients, it stops. Right. Mm. So, and one of the elements that we talked about in the original Thorium show was the fact that you can, part of your containment system is the salt plug. And when the salt plug melts, because the reactor is overheating, the fluid, the reactant fluid goes out of the chamber and into storage tanks. Right. And so, it's sort of a natural stopgap. Right. And because those storage tanks contain no graphite, you can't continue the reaction. So they just cool down. And they fact, do cool down. They don't, they don't, uh, we don't have the same dangerous problems that we do with, with the, with light water reactors, right? Right. We have the no runaway risk, right? The risk of runaway w with the solid core reactors, with those enriched uranium reactors, is that those neutrons will keep pinging around if they get closer together. If the cores fall apart or if the water is removed, they overheat and then they'll crumble or even melt, right? And now they're closer together and they react even faster. When you're dealing with a molten salt, the fluid naturally expands as it gets hotter. And as soon as it leaves the, the uh, moderator, it can't maintain that reaction. So it cools down and turns into a solid. Now, before you get too much further, I'm impatient and I want to know, like, I want to skip ahead to the benefits. So, um, we, we know it's more abundant and it's safer, but what about the amount of energy that can be output from one of these reactors compared to a light water reactor? Well, one of the problems you have with light water reactors is because of this inherent instability that as you fission those cores, they produce gases and they get damaged. You can't react with them for very long. Mm. 
And so after about six months or so, cores need to come out. And where the individual rod sets are in the pack matters. If they're closer to the center, they take more abuse from neutrons, and so they're more damaged. And so they'll rotate rods around inside the the core assemblies. And while they're doing this, by the way, they have to turn the reactor off, which takes time. So I guess I hear what you're saying is that, okay, the overall output, you know, per kilowatt hour might be lower, but... Let me get there. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when you do solid core, you have to shut down the reactor and shuffle the cores on a regular basis. But you hit a point where they're so unstable, you can't react them anymore. Yeah. Now, in the old design of reactors, you now take them out and reprocess them because they're still 95% fuel. Right. But in the U.S., you don't reprocess cores. You just store them. And we talked about that. That's because uh, Nixon made a deal, basically, with the Soviets. It was actually Carter and Ford. Carter and Ford, okay. That, it, during that during a presidential election that they stopped reprocessing fuel and yeah. they've never restarted. Yeah. The advantage of a molten salt reactor is that the fuel reprocessing cycle is part of the process. You run it all the time time. So you actually get a lot more energy per ton of fuel out and you get a lot fewer radioactive ingredients. The joke of light water reactors is at the point at which you need to take the rod out of the core because it's no longer safe to use for power. It's more radioactive than when it went in. Right. But it's also got a bunch of plutonium in it, which is useful if you need to make bombs. Yeah which is why they did fuel reprocessing and also why they stopped Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to make bombs anymore. Right. So the advantage of the thorium approach is if you have continuous fuel reprocessing, and we'll talk about how that actually works, you're able to better burn down the radioactive. So you have no heavy, long-lived radioactives in the process. So you'd start with 200 tons of ore, monzonite. You get a ton of thorium out of it, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, not that we need to do this because we have a lot of already refined thorium laying around. Sure. You take that ton, you run it through the reactor for some time. Now, in real life, you won't do this. You'll keep adding more. But imagine you just run that as hard as you could perfectly. At the end of 10 years, 83% of that ton, so 830 kilograms, are now stable, non-radioactive elements that can be sold. Wow. They've been turned into iodine, cesium, molybdenum, all the non-radioactive variants, so they can be used. And the 17% remaining, that's 170 kilograms out of that ton, have a 300-year storage requirement. Okay. But can that 17% be reprocessed? Probably not. Okay. At that point, it's pretty messed up and it's hard to break down. All okay? right. Okay. But compare that to the output of nuclear fuel rods and light water reactors with a 10,000 year storage requirement yeah. and they're 50 tons. Yeah. Okay. Quite an enhancement. Well, and it's the advantage of you keep being able to continuously reprocess the fuel and put the radioactives back in the reactor to be made into things that are safer. Right. Okay. So the reactor vessel itself is sort of a two-stage process. On the outside of the reactor with these tubes made of graphite is what they call the blanket salt. So this is where the thorium goes first. You pump the thorium through the blanket salt. Now, in the inside of this reactor, there are neutrons being emitted, and some of those neutrons are going to hit the blanket salt. Hmm. The main thing you're trying for, right, the the series of reactions is to turn thorium-232, which is atomic number 90, it has 90 protons in its core, you want to hit it with a neutron. Now, that makes it heavier. It's now uranium-233, and it's unstable. Within about 20 minutes, 
that neutron is going to become a proton, which makes it atomic weight 91. It's now protactinium 233. Okay. Right? You've now made a new element. Now, leave that for 30 days, that, that atom, and it will decay to uranium-233. Hmm. So, one another, another neutron is going to become a proton. It's now atomic weight 92. You've made uranium-233. It's alchemy. It is. We are literally doing transmutation. Hmm. Now, uranium-233 is not a naturally occurring element. It is extremely rare. You have to make it in a reactor. But it has a bunch of advantages over 235. And 238, the other, the other isotopes of uranium used in light water reactors. One is when you hit it with a neutron, 91.2% of the time it will fission, which is to say split in half. Wow. That is much more common than the heavier versions of uranium, where sometimes they'll just hang on to the neutron. They'll actually become heavier, become these heavier actinides that are very dangerous. And when that uranium fissions, A, it emits a ton of energy, mm -hmm. but it also spits out two to three neutrons with each hit. So it's a good chain reactor. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. It's happy, all right, because I'm going to add a little molten salt to my hashed passwords to literally create nuclear security. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I'm thinking it's figuratively. But, well, you know, you know that's what literally means today. Yeah. Oh, apparently it does now. Doesn't it? <laughs> it's so stupid. That's a shame. How does that happen? I don't know. How do that is literally the dictionary people giving up. Literally the dictionary people giving up. Literally. Right. <laughs> Not figuratively. It's actually time to give away a DevExpress D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Sean O'Connors. Hi, Richard. Sean. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Sean. And Sean just won a huge pile of awesome from DevExpress called the D-Experience subscription. If you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. All right, so... So what about bombs and uranium? So if, if uranium is coming out of this, how does that all fit together? Well, and, and one of the stories that was told early on in this whole thorium thing was, hey, you can't make bombs from this stuff. We're not using uranium-235, which was the core of the, the little boy bomb that blew up Hiroshima. Or, you know, we're not making any plutonium, so, you, you know, you can't make it, the Fat Man bomb or any of the other kinds of bombs that mm -hmm. use plutonium. And the reality is you can if you get pure uranium-233, you can make a bomb from it. And it has been done exactly once. Okay. It, during the 1950s, when the Americans were doing all of their nuclear tests, they actually used 233 in a bomb. The funny part is, it screwed up the test. Huh. 
Because for whatever reason, I can't imagine this happening, but imagine this. So the military is doing a test they're calling the military effects test. They're literally doing a test where they, they know exactly what the yield is, and they're, they're putting stuff in the way of the bomb to figure out what the damage is going to be. Okay. And the Los Alamos scientist changed out the core of the bomb with a 233 core instead of the normal plutonium core, and it reduces the yield by a third, which totally messes up the test. And they didn't tell the military they did it until after. Ah, uh, why did they do that? Like, why? Why? That seems insane. Why would it's, they do what that? What if they were wrong? Yeah. Like, what if it had been more powerful? Like, are you crazy? Yep. That's, that's anyway, crazy. That's what happened. There's <laughs> a bigger reason why it doesn't make good bombs. And that is that if you're not careful when you're doing this uh, blanket process, making thorium into protactinium and then into uranium, sometimes you'll make uranium-234. And 234 is a problem because it does decay into... Uh, a version of uranium called uh, 232, and that one is emits very high energy gamma rays when it decays. And gamma rays are they're bad on people, but they're worse on electronics. Yeah. And so, if you had 232 contamination in your 233, which is very possible, uh, you can't make a reliable weapon. It'll it'll literally damage the weapon, and it won't work reliably. Now, there's a couple of techniques you can use to keep your 233 pure. And this is one of the things that this particular reactor design gets into. So you're pumping this thorium salt through the blanket. Now, as that salt passes through the blanket layer in the reactor, some some of the thorium is going to be bombarded with neutrons and it's going to be turned into protactinium, which takes very little time. Okay. But now you've got to wait 30 days for it to become uranium. Right. You need to separate the thorium that hasn't been affected by the radiation so far with the protactinium that has. And so there's a chemical process they can use. This is one of the research pieces or the, the engineering pieces they've gotten to now where they actually pump that blanket salt through a reducing reaction with bismuth, um, which is a chemical. Okay. And bismuth actually dissolves out the protactinium. You're left with just the thorium, which you go come pump back into the reactor blanket and continue to do the thing. The metallic protactinium is left to decay in a separate tank for 30 days then it becomes pure uranium 233 far you know 99.9% .9 pure and then they wow. combine that with fluorine to make what they call uf4 which is the fluorine salt hmm. so it's a good system right it may, it's very reliable what i like about the system is you start with a fuel that is safe to handle and then you pass it into a machine that turns it into a fissile material you can use in your reactor okay and you're making your own, right? It's a continuous process. You feed thorium in, it makes it into this type of uranium, this uranium salt. Okay. The inner part of that reactor, so the outer part is the blanket. The inner part of the reactor has two sets of tubes in it. One are the reacting tubes. So this has the uranium-233 salt moving through it. The other one has a lithium-beryllium salt moving through it. Uh -huh. The lithium-beryllium salt is a coolant salt. It is actually the salt that you're going to pump out of the reactor and into the heat exchanger to spin turbines, which we'll talk more about later. Yeah. Lithium also really good for your brain. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Bonus. Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. But the other thing about lithium and beryllium is they're very stable, so they won't take on neutrons. You can't make them radioactive. Yeah. So they're a good fuel to pump out of the containment vessel to be able to turn your turbines. Mm. So the UF4 salt. Okay. Right. It's a very known process. In fact, this is the process that is used to make enriched uranium. The reason the fluorine is so cool is if you add four fluorine atoms to uranium, you get a liquid salt, a high-temperature liquid salt. 
very stable, can take a lot of heat, so forth. But if you put six fluorine atoms on uranium, you get a gas. Yeah. Okay? So let's think about the inner part of the reactor. So in the inner part of the reactor, we're pumping UF4 liquid through it. And it's generating heat, right? There's reactions going on. And so it's breaking that uranium-233 into other elements. Often that's cesium and iodine, the most common thing. Okay. Right? So suddenly a uranium atom is split in, into pieces, and you've got a piece of, a, of radioactive cesium and a piece of radioactive iodine. Fluorine immediately grabs those elements. So you now have a cesium fluoride and an iodine fluoride. Okay. They're their own salts. They're also liquid. Okay? Yep. Not every atom's going to do that. Different things are going to happen. There are some higher level actinides that can be created and so forth. As you pump back out of the reactor, you go through this chemical process. And one of the things they do in the chemical process is they take that stream of mixed salts, right? Let's call them contaminated salts because they've got other elements in them, and you fluorinate them. Mm. And when you fluorinate them, the heavy elements, uranium and above, turn into a gas. Okay. The lighter elements stay a liquid. You now separate off that gas, and then you defluorinate it. You take the fluor those two extra fluorine atoms off, and you're back to a clean radioactive salt you can put back in the reactor. Oh, nice. You follow me? Yeah, sure, I follow you. Anything that's reusable is good in my book. Right. So we're continuously moving the fluid in and out of the reactor, separating it into its high radioactives, and putting those high radioactives back into the reactor to try and break them down. The low radioactives are getting separated out. Hmm. And when we do that, now we can start separating them, extracting them, and processing them. So some of the gases you're going to get, like iodine fluoride and molybdenum, are actually medical use gases. Hmm. You can chemically separate them and sell them while they're still radioactive. Hmm. Others you can do vacuum distillation and separate them off and let them decay out. Cesium will naturally decay out in 30 days to a non-radioactive cesium, which you can sell. <laughs> so you're essentially taking thorium, making a whole bunch of heat and turning turbines with them, and then chemically processing the bulk of it into other products that are useful. Sounds like it's very cost efficient. Well, and smart because you're getting rid of radioactives. This gets back to, and we talked about this towards the end of the last show. Right. The logical place to build a reactor like this is to beside existing light water reactors. Yeah. For starters, you already have turbines, right? Right, they're water turbines, which is fine. Um, you, they already have a power grid there, right? This, the electrical cables are already running there. You also have all this used fuel, mm -hmm. so you could start taking this used fuel and using it as fuel for the molten salt reactor. You don't have to only feed it thorium; you can feed other radioactive elements into it, and it will burn them up and turn them into less radioactive and non-radioactive elements. Okay. Yeah. Is that compelling? Like, it just sort of makes sense to me. Right? Yeah, it does. I guess, you know, the questions I have are, um, you know, what does it cost to do a, a the cost-benefit analysis of turning a light water reactor into a molten salt reactor? I'm not, I'm not going to touch a light water reactor. I'm just going to build another reactor beside it. Oh, all right. Right? Until it, we'll, and we'll use up the light water reactor. Once it gets old enough that we don't want to use it anymore, then we'll shut it down. But in the meantime, if I can feed its old used fuel into my molten salt reactor, good news for us. In fact, there's a couple of molten salt designs, and Kirk Sorensen doesn't focus on this at all, but there's a company called Seaboard Technologies, mm -hmm. and their reactor is called the waste burner. Like, that's what they're focused on, is let's just burn existing nuclear fuel until it's no longer radioactive. Like, why store radioactive fuel when we can extract electricity from it and make it not radioactive? 
I was watching this uh, really cool video. I just pasted a link to you. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's NASA Thorium Remix 2016, which is a, uh, a two-hour documentary and a great introduction to the technology of thorium molten salt reactors. It's a pretty cool one. And, it, you know, it's all the stuff that you're saying here. So, originally, in the, the 2013 show, we talked about helium turbines. And the one of the things that's cool about helium turbines is because helium also can't hold on to neutrons, essentially non-radioactive, you could pump the helium directly into a reactor to collect heat and not have to worry about it becoming radioactive on the way back out. Nice. But helium is very tough to handle. And this reactor design doesn't really lend itself to this system at all. So I mentioned the cooling salt, the lithium beryllium salt. Yeah. Which does the heat exchange with the radioactive salt also resists being radioactive. That allows you to get heat out of the, the reactor. Now you can easily do a heat exchange with water on this. So your existing turbines could be run this way. The problem is that it's actually too hot for water. Ah. So you're going to have to play some games to limit the amount of heat. That flash steam can be very dangerous. So you'll have to do some tinkering with the heat exchange because you now have so much heat, you have a problem. But interestingly, there's been a bunch of research into other turbine technologies, and one of them is using CO2 as the heat conduit medium. So whatever happened to, to helium? Well, the, the helium works. It's just that the asset of helium isn't important in this scenario, right? The upside to helium is it resists radioactivity. That's good. The downside to helium, it's rare. Mm. It's super light. Mm. It's hard to handle. Okay. Right? Um, then the... What's wrong with water turbines? The problem with water is that it phase changes so easily, and whenever it does becoming a, a superheated gas and back to liquid, that it's hard to manage. It's corrosive when it does that. Yeah. It runs under very high pressures, although we're always going to have pressure when it comes to turbines, right? Right, but I mean, does the pressure change drastically with water more than other things? It does, but it, the biggest thing here is phase change is super hard on turbines. Oh, okay. So you, you go from steam and suddenly it becomes a liquid, mm -hmm. and that can be very, very damaging to the turbine. Sure, I get it. And that's why CO2 gets interesting, because CO2 is always going to be a gas. CO2 is super resistant to being anything other than a gas. Plus, we seem to have a lot of it these days. Well, it does seem to be around <laughs> now, doesn't yeah. it? And, you know, the upside to the water turbine system is that it's an open cycle system. You know, the, you know, the classic picture of a nuclear reactor with the great big towers. Yeah. Those are cooling towers for the water for the turbines. You pump water out of the river because and that's why most reactors are by rivers. That's mm. cold water. You use it in the turbines, which heats it up a whole bunch. And then you cool it in those uh, with those big cooling towers. Yeah. And then release it back into the river. What you really want is a closed cycle turbine. Right, where the medium that you're using to spin the turbine never gets released. And that's one of the things with CO2. Yeah. It's a safe gas. You you can do it in a closed loop. You actually want to run this at high pressure. Yeah. And uh and then you get into this mode called supercriticality, where at sufficient pressure, at sufficient temperatures, CO2 becomes this weird liquid effect. This is a technology that's known. They actually use it to decaffeinate coffee beans. Mm-hmm. You use high-pressure CO2 to take the caffeine out of coffee beans. Hmm. Uh, but at the inlet temperature, so this is the temperature as it gets exposed to the heat exchanger from the molten salt reactor, you got about 550 degrees of Celsius to play with at very high pressure, so about 200 bars yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's pushed through a closed Brayton cycle turbine. So you take the high temperature CO2 from the heat source, it spins the turbine, that causes it to expand, it loses some of its temperature, but it's still got enough energy in it, you can pump it into a second stage turbine. And actually, most of these will do three steps before they're fully decompressed. Mm. And then the CO2 is just recycled and reheated. Cool. Now, the downside to this design is that it has not been scaled. Oh. In fact... This year, they're building the first, this year being 2016, they're building the first 10 megawatt close braking cycle uh, CO2 turbine. It's a oh, DOE wow. project. So it's new. Okay. And again, I'm still keen on them being able to do heat exchanging against steam turbines because you have them. Right. Right? Right. But if you think about it, because we don't need the big containment vessels and because we're trying to use close cycle turbines and so forth, everything gets smaller and simpler and easier to build. Yeah. We don't have all the pressure systems and so forth. So the reactors could be much smaller. Plus, if you can automate this continuous refueling and continuous reprocessing process, mm. you can build little reactors. They don't have to be these massive structures anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. And this is where we got to uh, the last time, the sort of the idea of cities having their own reactor and possibly even scaling them down so that in the neighborhood could have a reactor. Yeah. Right. So ask me what the problems are then. Why, why is this all just glorious and perfect? Well, what are the problems then, Richard? Why isn't all this glorious and perfect? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you glad right. I asked? I'm glad you asked. You make me happy. Uh, no meatballs. What meatballs? What are you talking about? There's no meatballs here. All right. Problem number one. And this is easy. This is one of the largest problems. Actually, this is several big problems. Uh, fluorine salts are fairly tricky stuff to handle. And mm. so you need uh, specific materials to contain it. It's fine in graphite, but you can't make pipes out of graphite reliably. There is a metal called uh, a metal alloy called Hastaloy N, which mm -hmm. is perfect for handling fluorine salts. Never been certified for nuclear power. Oh. It's literally years to certify a metal like that. Now there are a couple other designs that are trying to use other materials that are already certified, but that certification process is ongoing. Mm. Okay, that's a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge. It's an engineering challenge. Right. It can be resolved. It's a certification process, and we won't argue that the certification process has got a little out of hand, and we should come up with better ones, mm -hmm. but nobody wants a meltdown. Mm. What about, you know, this whole system using fluorine to grab all elements that are created from the, as the fission products is awesome, but what if you have elements that don't get grabbed? Sure. Now, remember your chemistry class. Pull out your uh, your table of elements Name me some elements that are hard to combine with uh, other chemicals that are non-reactive. Well, the inert gases, for one. You would be correct, sir. So a, a viable byproduct of U-233 uh, reactions, not very common, but it does happen, is both krypton and xenon. Hmm. Now, in a molten salt reactor, what is going to happen to a, no a high-temperature noble gas? Where is it going to go? Hmm. It's going to try and escape. It's going to bubble out of the liquid. It's going to accumulate at the top of the reactor, right? Yeah. Typically, you go from that molten salt, you make that uranium atom into a xenon-131 atom. The expansion is massive, right? Gases are typically 60 times the volume compared to a solid. Right. So they need a place to go. Mm. And by the way, those are radioactive isotopes of noble gases. That's why they're krypton and xenon. They're heavy enough that they can actually have unstable isotopes. They take time to decay out. There needs to be a collection system for this. Okay. And they need to be stored until they have their half-life uh, reduced. All right. 
there's another challenge, which is tritium. And actually, tritium is one of the most difficult problems to deal with in any reactor. You say that now, but <laughs> Dr. Oz says otherwise. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think that's, that's true. The to, <laughs> that's the answer to every scientific uh, problem, Dr. Oz. Just saying. So tritium is an isotope of, of hydrogen. It has two neutrons, where hydrogen normally doesn't have any, and one neutron is deuterium, which was not that big of troubling. Uh, it, it has a half-life of 12 and a half years. So that means in 12 and a half years, a given amount of tritium will decay to deuterium. Mm. Half of it will. Or, or actually decay to become non-radioactive helium. Okay. But it's naturally a gas, so it's tricky to store. And when it does that, that emission, it's actually a, a fairly radioactive event. I mean, it's not got huge penetration abilities. We're talking about a couple of millimeters. You protect yourself with foil. Okay. But it has to be managed, and there's no simple ways to manage that. Uh, I see. Uh, so we need different heat exchanger designs to deal with, with steam or one of these new turbines. We need a good pumping system to move this radioactive fluid around, but still be able to keep the pumps healthy because that's moving parts inside of a radioactive fluid. Uh, we got to manage noble gases. We've got to certify a bunch of, uh, of of compounds. We have to manage tritium. Now, if you have all these problems and challenges, and yet people are still, you mentioned a half a dozen or so uh, reactors being built now. How right. how are they being well, built without these um, without these issues being addressed, or are they? How are they addressed? What them? I said is there's there's half a dozen companies trying to build a reactor. Okay, so they're they are after money. Okay. Now, and this sort of sets us up for another show. Mm. Are you surprised? No, actually. So, I mean, there are six molten salt reactor companies that I can see that are serious, that are, that are putting out stuff all the time, that are soliciting funds and so forth. And they're mostly soliciting funds from governments mm. because governments tend to develop these things. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to a whole conversation about fourth generation nuclear power as a whole. Okay. So back in 2000, the, the Generation 4 International Forum was formed. 13 countries, including the United States, Canada, Russia, China, Britain, and so forth, basically looking for what, it, what are the technologies we pour our energy into to build fourth generation nuclear power. And I've been looking at doing a whole show on this, but they really whittled down a hundred different concepts into six designs. Hmm. One of them is the molten salt reactor design. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there are a bunch of others. So different organizations, and it's largely built on what skills do they have? Mm. So what makes sense? Like there's a proposal for sodium-cooled fast reactors um, based on reactor designs that the Soviets use mm. as well. The U.S. did a bit of research in this space as well. You know, had, and again, they're, they're trying to work with stuff that's at higher temperature because it's more efficient with uh, than, than water mm -hmm. for this. There's a lead-cooled fast reactor. There are gas-cooled reactors. Um, there's a reactor called that Canada's leading development on called the supercritical water-cooled reactor. Hmm. So trying to use water at even higher temperatures. Um, the very high-temperature reactor designs uh, is looking at how to evolve light water reactor designs and, and other designs to work at extremely high temperatures. One of the reactor designs that comes up in that is pebble bed. Remember we yeah, talked about pebble bed? Right. That's That was a very interesting one, yeah. And it, it's got its, its own set of issues, but that is these designs for let's not be afraid of high temperature. Let's be able to manage it properly. Right. And it, I would argue that those six companies that have recently come up and, and are really pushing on molten salt are pushing on it because of what GIF did, the, 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 uh, 
the International Forum did in 2000. They've continued to update this stuff. And if we're interested, I mean, I will do a whole show just on this element of it, of how they're doing this. But what's interesting to me is I'm watching their ongoing research. They release new documents every year or two is molten salt's not at the top of their list. <laughs> Why? Well, and I think part of it is the problems I particularly outline because they know how long it takes to, do, to certify something like Hastelloy K. And yeah. so they're looking at reactor designs where most of the materials are already known yeah, and they're yeah. comfortable with them and saying, we'd rather go that way than this way. But at their current estimates, I mean, these are very conservative government scientists, not entrepreneurs. They're talking about molten salt reactors being viable in the 2030s. Right. So they're, they're definitely not looking during their term. <laughs> push to push that down to somebody else's terms. What, what, but what they're really looking at is, based on the rate that we have been doing things, how long do we think it's going to take to get yeah. there? And that's sort of a safe, if uninspiring way to think about the problem. Sure. Uh, but you know, the other thing I noticed, you know, as an aside to this, as we're wrapping up, is it's been almost a year since I'd done anything on energy, which is a little embarrassing. Yeah. Well, you kind of got sidetracked with space travel and airplanes and all sorts of things. Well, and a bunch of GMO stuff. Yeah, for better yeah, or worse. yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of new information in the solar space that's very interesting. There is uh, some interesting things happening in wave power, the new power storage technology. So I guess we got to leave it to the listener. If Tell us what you're most excited about, because I'm excited about everything. And don't you have a you know? suggestion board somewhere, Richard? I, I do, and we can continue to do the voting on that. Uh, there's certainly some new spacecraft technologies, new aircraft technologies that are coming out. Um, what's going to happen with the space station? I got a whole bunch of new research in asteroid mining. Uh, I'm looking at de-extinction. Hmm. Uh, and you know, the one that's got, I've got a lot of notes on right now is the Large Hadron Collider and some of the things happening with the Higgs boson and supersymmetry and the new standard model. Yeah. So, boy, so many choices. Uh, we're not going to run out of subject material. Do that. <laughs> that's much. great. So I'll put up a link to the voting board. And uh, folks can get that and uh, some of the things on the molten salt reactors. Uh, let us know what you want to hear next. Awesome. I can't wait. I always enjoy talking to you, my friend, and everybody else does too. Thank you, buddy. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a